0: Hey folks, I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg, and this is the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we'd like to welcome Julia Barnes. Julia is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. She is the director of Sea of Life and the upcoming film, Bright Green Lies. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, let's first talk about the past, and then we can talk about the present and future. So what is Sea of Life?
1: Yeah, it's a documentary that I started making when I was 16. Um, I had just learned about what was happening to the planet and to the ocean and, you know, basically that we're in the midst of a six mass extinction and I just wanted to do something about it. So I, yeah, picked up a video camera and started uh, going around interviewing people, trying to um, show people what's happening in the ocean because it's so often out of sight and out of mind and, you know, 90% of the fish are gone and we're losing the coral reefs and there's this this huge mass extinction that's going on in the ocean right now. Um, it's just in so much trouble. So yeah, I made this documentary to um, expose that side of things. Um, it came out in 2016. Right now it's on Crave in Canada and Vimeo um, for the rest of the world. That's
0: That's really exciting. So what was your main takeaway from that film in terms of Obviously, you probably went into it with some ideas of how things were in the process of making the film. Did you uncover anything else or you were like, yeah, this is pretty much what I thought it would be?
1: I thought it would be bad. It turned out to be really bad. <laughs> um, all of the scientists who I interviewed were like pretty pessimistic about things. I mean, I was talking to the top coral scientists and they were telling me like, There's so much carbon in the atmosphere right now. So carbon dioxide actually has this huge impact on the ocean. It gets absorbed into the ocean, a lot of it, and it changes the acidity of the ocean. And in a more acidic world, things that build uh, shells and skeletons can't form. Right now, the ocean is going acidic faster than in any mass extinction of the past. Um, It's about 30% more acidic than it was before the Industrial Revolution. And this means that basically coral reefs, pretty soon won't be able to build their skeletons, won't be able to survive. So they were telling me that even if we stopped releasing carbon into the atmosphere today, um, there's so much already, it's gonna continue to get absorbed into the ocean. There's this lag time effect and it would basically wipe out coral reefs by the middle of the century. It's pretty devastating stuff to learn. I mean, I think, and I kept doing research on it and I think we could still turn it around if we sequestered a lot of carbon. Uh, brought a lot of life back. Actually learned after making the film that fish sequester carbon in their bodies. And they excrete these things called gut rocks, which help balance the acidity of the ocean. They make the ocean less acidic. So you know, 90% of them are gone right now and they could come back very quickly. Um, I've seen places where uh, the life in the ocean has been wiped out, but they, as soon as they stopped putting pressure on it and gave it a break, life came back really quickly. Um, so it can happen. Um, I think we still could turn things around, but yeah, it's just it's pretty devastating to see how much harm industrial civilization has caused to the ocean in such a short period of time, and we are absolutely on a path towards um, devastation and losing so much of the life and so much of what we depend on for survival. The plankton, who produce most of the oxygen in the air that we breathe, are being wiped out. Forty percent of them are gone. Um, Yeah, things are pretty,
0: pretty messed up. Yeah. Well, the acidification stuff, that's something that only came on my radar over the last, I don't know, decade. I wasn't as aware of stuff like that. And when you hear coral reefs, you're like, oh, well, that's that's a bummer that, so there'll be less pretty things. And it's like, well, why are coral reefs important? They're more than just pretty things to snorkel on top of.
1: Yeah, definitely. They're home to 25% of, or up to 30% of all the, life in the ocean, all the species in the ocean, you know, spend some part of their life on coral reefs. So they're actually really key to the life of the ocean. Um, They cover less than one percent of the seafloor. So you think they're this pretty minor thing, but no, they play a huge role in in the entire ocean. Pelagic species come through to use the cleaning stations there. They just, they're they're absolutely key. Um, They're really important.
0: They're kind of like old growth forests, I guess, in the terms that there's a lot less of them out there, but they're extremely important, the little bits that we have left. And it is a, it's a bummer about fish and forests, but like you said, the fish can come back if we leave them the hell alone for a little bit. Same with forests, right? You see places like Chernobyl, and obviously that's radioactive forests, so not ideal. But we step back for just a matter of decades and everything returns nature wants to return so there might be a lot of daunting stuff in terms of climate and stuff like that but there are certain things that hey all we have to do is just back up and nature will work on its own if we just let it and it's uh it's sad that so yeah we know more about the surface of Mars now, our latest robot we sent up there, then we do a lot of the ocean. And obviously the deep sea ocean is a little bit different than the more surface area coral reefs. But I think it just exemplifies the point that we, we seem to care more about things that I don't know, don't matter. And, and what, what do you, what do you think the, what do you think the driving force behind what appears to be almost a total indifference to what we're doing to The ocean just to speak on one particular topic what in comparison to we're fascinated by some barren rock out in space which is kind of cool i mean i'll give them that
1: (laughs) yeah it's really weird um especially people who think that the solution is like to go out and live on another planet or something it's like there's no life there we've got all the life here all the amazing and everything we need and it's just yeah it's weird i don't know um This is, this is what
0: matters. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. And I do think it's pretty hilarious that people are like, well, we're going to figure out a way to live on Mars. It's like, how about we figure out a way to live on Earth, the place that actually does everything already for us and all we have to do is not kill it and it will let us live? How about we master that and then we can talk about going to another planet? But uh, yeah, it's it's like always a distraction. But uh, yeah, your film, where is that available? If folks want to check out the sea of life.
1: The film is available on um, Vimeo on demand for people who want to watch it.
0: Oh, excellent. So that was your past film. And obviously the ocean issue is still very important, but now you are either working on or have you finished your next film?
1: It's finished. Yep.
0: So bright green lies. What is it?
1: So bright green lies is a documentary that looks at the, complete insanity of this green technology as savior um, movement that has come to dominate so much of mainstream environmentalism. And it just kind of goes through one by one. It looks at, you know, solar, wind, hydro, biomass, um, electric cars, green consumerism, all of these things that a lot of people are putting their faith in for like, these are gonna, you know, save the environment and just goes, no, I mean, these things are not what people think they are, and they're, they are not only are they insufficient to solve the problems that are facing the natural world, but they actually power, I mean, the whole uh, idea that producing a whole bunch more energy would be good for the planet is nuts. I mean, it's about powering the very system that is destroying life on the planet. I mean, energy is what fuels all these destructive industries, like do we want solar-powered bottom trawlers or feller bunchers? I mean, this is the problem. It's like there's so much energy at our disposal, and it's being used to convert the living world into commodities.
0: Yeah. Well, so I was, as you may be aware, part of the film Planet of the Humans. So that was put out by Jeff Gibbs and executively produced by Michael Moore. And that was one of the first shots across the bow in terms of a larger profile film that is saying, hey, let's take a closer look at how what we're calling environmentalism might in many cases not be environmentalism. And personally, I think all the critiques are valid. I personally, I'm not super concerned about, say, the the impacts of solar and wind alone. They do have impacts. There's no question about it. That's not, I would say, at the top of my list. But I think the underlying aspect of Hey, if we're just gonna like put a you know some solar panels up there and expect that somehow that's gonna change anything underlying, just ignoring for a minute all the impacts with with solar and wind, which are are they they're tremendous and and they're often ignored. But that's the piece that seems to be either not understood by mainstream enviros or just push back against because they know something is up and like it's like you said okay we switch over to some of these energy sources and and we'll get to a minute whether that actually works we're still powering this machine and we're not really addressing any of the underlying issues we're we're probably not even addressing climate change but we're definitely not addressing biodiversity loss overfishing, deforestation across the board but i i think the Deeper issue, of course, is that, well, another of the deeper issues is that what we end up doing is we just add on more. So it's like solar and wind to replace fossil fuels. Well, it ends up being solar and wind on top of more fossil fuels, which are actually required to create more solar and wind. So the idea that we're going to have a world in which we're creating solar panels with the energy from solar. We'll see, but I don't think that's going to happen. So anyway, that was a lot there. What do you want to, you can say anything about any of that.
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah, I think the dominant thing, the story that we're told is that we can just switch over to solar and wind and power the system exactly the way that we have it. And it's like the system, exactly the way that we have it is the problem. So that's just fundamentally, I mean, yeah, huge problem there. But then of course, Solar and wind are not benign. And yeah, you can't make solar panels and wind turbines with more solar panels and wind turbines. There's just so many parts of the process that cannot be powered by anything except for fossil fuels, like smelting the metal. You can't heat things to a high enough temperature with electricity. Um, Fossil fuels are inextricable from the process. Um, You just, you can't produce these things without an industrial economy that's mostly run on fossil fuels.
0: Yeah, it's, I think it's irrefutable fact, what you're saying. And I think that's why it's so threatening to environmentalists. I would call them mainstream environmentalists for lack of a better word. And what I saw about the film Planet of the Humans. So the film itself, I mean, I've been in that world for a long time. It it was, I thought, a well done film. But to me, I already knew all that stuff. To me, what was the most interesting was how basically the mainstream environmentalists, they didn't just be like, well, we're going to debate some aspects of it, which I would hope. And I think that's a constructive conversation. They were like, this is evil. We're actually going to organize a censorship <laughs> campaign. We're going to blacklist it. It was uh, it was not that effective in terms of making it hidden from people. And in fact, in many ways, it made people more aware of it than they would have, but they definitely kept it out of certain channels. And that revealed, that to me was the final nail of the coffin of the environmental movement. I was already extremely skeptical about every aspect of it, knowing that I had been working on the biomass issue for years and years and was actually basically pushed out of the environmental movement for bringing it up. And now they're saying, no, 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 we've always cared about it. And and it's like, I know for a fact that you have not and so I, I don't have much faith in those folks. I think if they want to turn over a new leaf, that's great. And I think some people genuinely have. And I think opening that door to people who want to take a look at this. But it seems as if the vast majority of the current existing environmental movement is not only uninterested, they are threatened by. And so it's got to be about reaching a new audience and creating environmental movement 2.0 or calling it something different. What do you think about all that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The mainstream, you know, they call themselves environmentalists. I'm not sure you can call it that. Um, What they promote is so anti-environmental. And yeah, I mean, for them, it's all about, um, obviously, funding sources have a big influence on what they promote and also just wanting to tell an easy story that gives people an easy answer that they want to hear. But I think most like individuals, people who consider themselves environmentalists are doing it because they care about the natural world. They care about life on the planet. They want to protect it. Um, and so there's a, there's a big disconnect here. Yeah. And I think once people realize that these technologies are really just powering and fueling this destructive system that they're trying to maintain, um, I think we're going to see a change in, you know where people put their trust in terms of environmental groups um yeah the mainstream environmental movement does not have the best interests of the natural world at heart and it's kind of a sad thing to realize but um that's the reality right now
0: Mm -hmm. well unfortunately a lot of things are about who gets their stuff out there furthest and so you think about it this way let's say there's some terrible band that gets signed by some monster label. And then there's literally tens of millions of dollars to promote their stuff across the radio and channel. That's going to be what's on at the gym. That's going to be what, you know, teenagers are listening to. That's how stuff gets out there. There may be this amazing indie band that's playing in some back room in Kansas and they're the best band ever. And no one hears of them. No one promotes them. It's it's not going to get out there. So unfortunately we most people are just that they see a Sierra club and they're like, well, that's, that's cool because that comes across their radar and they get a calendar or whatever. So what I'm not asking you to solve this, because this is the ongoing issue. Do you think that people are going to seek out information on their own? Or do you think it's like maybe by doing more things like making the film that you're making, that's how we're going to get out there.
1: Well, yeah, we are so marketed to, I mean, and, we get told this story our whole lives. Like when I was in grade seven, it was the first time we studied climate change in school. And the teachers was like, don't worry, you don't have to um, you know, stress out too much about climate change because by the time you're adults, the world is going to be powered by solar and wind and everything's mm-hmm. going to be fine. And then if you get into environmentalism and you subscribe to all these mainstream groups, they're always selling this story. They're always telling you solar and wind is going to save the world. It's on all their websites. You know, there's a scene in Bright Green Lives where I go through all the websites and read out information that's on there they're all promoting this stuff and so it's very easy you know the story just gets in people's head and it's solar and wind has become synonymous with saving the planet um just because we get told it over and over again but i think yeah it only takes one documentary or one book that you read or something to point out the truth and then you see through all those lies and it just it doesn't work anymore I think people are hungry to know this information. I think there is kind of this sense that we're being lied to, you know, because the story just doesn't add up. If these things were solutions to the problems, why aren't we seeing a decrease in carbon emissions? You know, they're claiming that so many countries are going 100% renewable, and yada, yada. And I mean, why isn't this happening? And why is it such a struggle? Um, there's just, it just, it doesn't add up with also the the understanding of the problems as being um, behavioral and fundamental to our relationship to the natural world and the way that we're interacting with it. It's like, I, yeah, I think people have a sense that, that this story is more of a fairy tale than reality. And yeah, they're interested to know about it. Um, mm-hmm. Just the like small amount of people who I've shown the film to so far, like I showed it to some people who um, were involved in groups that promote a lot of solar and wind and renewables. And basically they watched the film and they were like, wow, we've been getting everything wrong. And, you know, we've got to show this film when it comes out and we've got to change what we're, Hmm. what we're lobbying about. So, yeah, I think, I think, it will absolutely change. I don't think these technologies will be able to maintain their green image very much longer. Um, I think we're going to get to a point in the future where people look back and are like, really, did you have to make a film about this? I mean, of course, manufacturing a whole bunch of technologies wasn't going to you know, solve the problem.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, so yeah, there are a lot of good things that you said there that I want to comment on. So first of all, yeah, solar, wind, biomass, they was like, oh, and biomass. And then you actually look at the numbers, and not to harp on biomass, but I tend to harp on biomass, it's actually the vast majority of the renewable energy. Now, I haven't looked into the numbers recently, but as of the last several years, it was half of the, quote, renewable energy in the US. So if you include electricity, heating, transportation fuels, biomass that's like nowhere ever talked about and it's it's an absolute fact wind i'm just going to throw some numbers out there. i think it was like maybe 10 percent of electricity not so and then like solar is like two percent of electricity electricity is only a small percentage of our energy use with uh you know heating and transportation so to me biomass is important because it was basically a litmus test right it's like when all of a sudden, when I was working on forest protection issues and I found that environmental groups were saying, yeah, you know about those forests, we're actually going to cut them and burn them. I was like, do, am I missing something here? And I found out I was not missing anything. <laughs> and, um, a lot of those folks are now backing away from it after they helped build, uh, dozens and dozens of those facilities and, uh, created all the greenwash around that. And, uh, spurred on the global use of it and they're doing nothing to try to shut down those facilities that currently exist. But so that's, to me, biomass is like that way in the door to, to show Maybe not so much, because it's a little tougher to overcome when it comes to solar and wind, because what do you think of solar? When you think of solar, you think of panels on somebody's house, and it's like how how is that a problem right? And of course, you look into where do the minerals come from and stuff like that. But in terms of the the land use compared to you know, biomass or compared to mining that you see, right? It's a lot different in terms of a smokestack. It doesn't have that. But of course, when you get into those industrial components of it, a lot of those things still apply. And like we said, it's still powering a thing that we're not really addressing. So, but the other piece you mentioned was behavior. And I think that is exactly where the nail on the head is. So environmental groups, exist mostly to perpetuate themselves. And of course, the idea of if you tell people, hey, we might need to do things differently and radically differently, not just take shorter showers, which I mean, fine, you know, it, it's we shouldn't be wasteful like that. There's I'm okay with that. But the idea that that's even a, a an answer to me is, is is silly. So the behavior component, if they tell people to how to live their life, they don't people aren't interested in that people would rather just hear easy answers go on living just plug in the magic and we're good but something that folks we know that folks who are suffering from any form of mental illness or even even you know depression anxiety or just some sort of non-productive behavior patterns there's something called cognitive behavioral therapy that's used by psychologists and psychiatrists cbt and that's literally about okay here is the stimulus here is how I end up responding to that. I'm going to work on those patterns. So it's fully established in science that we can change our behavior when we're doing things that are, are negative to ourselves in society. So a lot of people are like, you can't change behavior. Bullshit. We absolutely, we absolutely can. And I'd just be interested to see environmental groups start to acknowledge that. And even like, what would a cognitive behavioral therapy for the earth look like? Who knows? But so Bright Green Lies, it's based on a book, right?
1: Yeah. So the book Bright Green Lies is by Derek Jensen, Lear Keith and Max Wilbert. It's a really great book. It's actually just came out available on Derek's website. You can order it now. Um, Yeah, it's an excellent book. It goes through all this stuff in extreme detail. Um, Lots of information about, you know, the full story of, of how things are made whether it's led light bulbs or solar panels or you know it's just electric cars and all of the other problems that are associated with these things that you're not going to be told by the mainstream environmental movement yeah. um, it's a great source of information on this stuff and it's wonderfully biocentric
0: well, I think it's really important when films are based on books. So Planet of the Humans was based a bit on Ozzy Zenner, who was a producer of Green Illusion. So when, when you have a book out there that has just a depth of information that then you can draw from, obviously, you can't just translate a book directly to a film, you have to you have to pull out the highlights it's a totally different medium but it's a great thing to know that it is based on a lot of documentation and yeah i've read plenty of Jensen's stuff over the years and he actually put out i think the best book i've ever read on forest called strangely like war with george draffen who I I believe my understanding of George Drafton was more the researcher and then Jensen was more the the overall story the the narrative and then the writing he's such a he's such a great writer and it was a uh, yeah I thought it was a, an amazing book and so I'm sure Bright Green Lies has has lots of great information it was also very very um, readable in terms of the narrative so so you how did you draw it just in terms of the process of going from book cuz that's something that I do I write and I haven't really made films. So how did you go about being like, here's a big ass book and I've got to make it into a what, a 90 minute film or, or however long. How did you go about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the idea actually started, I was interviewing Derek. He was the last person who I interviewed for my ocean documentary. And I asked him like one question about renewable energy. And he started telling me about this book that he was working on and just some facts that were like really mind-blowing about how destructive this stuff is and um so i knew like right away that i wanted to make a film about this i thought this was the most important issue that nobody was really talking about at the time um if we have this environmental movement no matter how big or impassioned it is it's never going to succeed if we're you know pushing for the wrong solutions so um i started uh it was about a year later doing some interviews for this film, Breaking Lies, interviewing Derek and Max and Lear. And it wasn't until I think a year after that, that I actually read the book and I did another round of interviews with them, kind of like drawing things out of that, um, what I thought would be important to include what I had covered the first time around. So it wasn't like I started from this huge book. It was, how am I gonna translate it to a movie? I started with the concept and, you know, explored and then yeah, drew some, you know, deeper insights from the book. Uh, when I did end up reading a
0: draft of it okay yeah that's really interesting because as somebody who is a creator I always like to know how how people create their art you know documentary is definitely art it's also journalism at the same time so that's that's kind of exciting so what's what are some of the aspects that are gotten into in the film I mean I, I guess we can probably guess but what are the things that stand out to you
1: I think the biggest surprise for me was learning about the impact of green tech on the ocean. Um, Cause you know, I made this whole film about the ocean and uh, this was an issue that I had never heard of before but it scares me just as much as anything else. So it's called deep sea mining. Um, they have plans to mine uh, mine deep sea um, to produce a lot of the components that are involved in batteries for electric cars, but also energy storage for the grid for things like solar and wind. Um, So basically they wanna produce a whole crap load of batteries and they don't think there's enough material just on land to do this. So mining the deep sea involves scraping up a lot of sediment from the bottom of the ocean, pumping it to the surface, um, processing it on a mining vessel. So the estimates are that each mining vessel would process two to six million cubic feet of sediment every day. And then the remaining slurry gets dumped back into the ocean where it absolutely pollutes the ocean, um, toxifies the food web with heavy metals, um, could potentially disrupt the plankton who produced most of the oxygen in the air that we breathe. It's just, just this huge disaster that is coming down the line and it's being driven um, largely by the green technology industry and the increased demand for these things that they're expecting in the future
0: well, we come again to, we know more about the surface of other planets or the moon than we do our own ocean. And we tend not to give a shit about it because we can't really see it. Like you can see the moon at least <laughs> you can't see the bottom of the ocean. And that's, I think it could get even uh, all biblical with it in terms of, we think that a life actually came maybe from these deep sea vents. Like That's the first form of thermophilic bacteria and that may have actually originated all life on the planet and so we're going back to the source of all life and we're just like ah, we'll dig it up just a bunch of dirt nothing lives down there and it's like the setup for a science fiction film and maybe there is some giant leviathan down there that's going to start eating people which I think that would be fair but That'll be your next film. Well, that's more of the stuff that I write about. (laughs) I write in my horror fiction. I, 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 I'm actually, I'm writing right now an environmental horror folk novel, which uh, ties a little bit into biomass. And you're like, Jesus Christ, Josh, with you and your biomass. I'm like, no, trust me. It fits into this book. You'll see. But yeah. So, so uh, who are some of the folks that you spoke to in the film?
1: So the main people are Derek Max lear the authors of the book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I also talked to Richard York. He's a scientist who came up with what he calls the displacement paradox. So basically he just looked at the what was happening in the real world with the addition of solar and wind to the grid and or any type of so-called renewable energy. I mean, hydro as well, biomass as well. And what he found was that they're not displacing fossil fuels because you know we live in a growth economy and as i mean you can see this actually if you look back through the entire history of energy usage um basically there's a graph and each new energy source as it's being added adds on top of what was already available yep. so people started out burning wood for um heat and such things and when they added coal there wasn't less wood being burned uh there was just it became a more high energy culture more high energy society same thing when you add um, fossil fuels of any type and or you know nuclear whatever they stack on top of each other so what he found was that as solar and wind is being added to the grid it's not even having the effect you know people think that there's this baseline demand for energy and if you meet that with alternative energy sources then there's going to be less fossil fuel being used I mean that's the whole premise upon which this is based and that's not the reality. That's not what's actually happening. Right. Um, we become a more high energy society as these energy sources are added.
0: Right. And I think they do some sleight of hand with numbers. We're like, look, the percentage of what we're using is is more renewable, whatever you want to call it, than in the past. And it's like, yeah, but we're also using more energy. So it's like, it's sleight of hand. It's meaningless. And yeah, it's, But but here's the thing that I'm noticing in terms of, PR. And I do think we have to address this at some point. And I have to say that we've not been very good at addressing it. So using Planet of the Humans again, which, um, you know, I know your film is going to be a a totally different thing and and is building on its own sources. And and so I'm not trying to make it into, uh, you know, Planet of the Humans part two or anything like that, but we have the example of Planet of the Humans out in the world right now. So for instance, you go on Twitter, which is a shit show and don't do it. But if you go on there and I, I monitor the, the hashtag planet of the humans, because I find it kind of interesting. So what you'll find there is you'll find a lot of people who are the genuine environmentalists, the ones who are, have either always known or woke up to the fact that, Oh, wait a second, just slapping some panels up does not fix anything in many ways can make things worse. And there'll be a variety of different voices on that, which is excellent. That's kind of where I like to hang out. The dissident environmentalists who basically are the black sheep because they're basically Too pro environmental for the environmental movement, but and we can't deny this: a lot of the folks who play around in that hashtag are anti environmentalists, and these are folks who couldn't give a shit for the environmental world. But what they're doing is they're being like, "Look, Michael Moore said solar power is bad. Therefore, see all environmentalism, climate change is fake, and all this stuff." And I I keep reminding to them, "I'm like, you're you're advocating for a film that is one of the most basically anti-climate change films are in terms of the the most uh it called the most attention to the devastating effects of climate change that's what planet of the human starts with it starts from fossil fuels and other things that we've been burning have created this terrible situation with the climate and renewables alone aren't going to get us out of it instead these folks will they'll take one piece of it and either they don't understand or they or they ignore so first of all a film such as that, a film such of yours comes from the basis of climate change is real. It's very severe. And yeah, for the most part has been created likely from fossil fuels. But then the next step is where we're going on this path isn't any good. But, but what happens is like the people who tried to blacklist the film and, and censor it, they're like, look, here's somebody from the fossil fuel industry who is promoting this film. Now, that is true. And so they'll, they'll take that one little piece, and they also love the the concept of the left eating the left. So they'll they'll beat you know they'll they'll promote anything that they think causes dissent in the ranks. So how do we how do we address the fact that we get lumped into the category with actual anti environmentalists because they like how we're digging at the faux environmentalists?
1: it's what happens. I don't know that you can do anything about it. I mean, people are going to, you know, say whatever they want to say about it. But obviously, you know, we know that's not the reality. Um, but yeah, it's really funny and unfortunate. But you say anything against solar and wind, and people are like, oh my gosh, you must be pro-fossil fuels or something like that. And that makes no sense. I mean, it's a false choice. And, you know, a lot of this ideology is based on false choices. It's the idea that we can either have solar panels or we can have fossil fuels and it doesn't work like that. Um, the two industries are actually not opposed to each other. There's a lot of crossover between them, but you can be against both. I mean, there's a third option too, which is to, you know, be, you know, wanting less energy usage or being opposed to it altogether and saying, Hey, actually, electricity is luxury i mean our species survived without it for hundreds of thousands of years this is literally this is we're talking about destroying the world to provide luxuries for humans and you know valuing our comforts and elegancies above the lives of other species and the continuation of life on the planet
0: yeah yeah i I think you make a great point it is They're they're false choices. And you also say there's not much we can do about people who will try to smear us. I I think it's important to be able to engage in those discussions and those dialogues. But the problem is, and what I noticed as a journalist and just as a human who tried to write things about Planet of the Human, is, is these environmental media did not want the discussion and you know so one i'll just i'll I'll name one right now even though i hadn't before uh because they're continuing with their doubling down of denial of reality is earth island journal which is a publication i literally wrote for for like 10 years and they were they let me write stuff about biomass they were one of the few places that let me write about biomass so kudos to them they they either saw that that was an important issue or I just wore them down with the amount of submissions and they just had to publish that. So they would publish some of my stuff on that. And then when it came to the film coming out, they ran a piece saying, Oh, it was called planet of the humans is crap. Like that's, that's the level of the dialogue. Like, all right, well, if they had ignored it entirely, they're not going to want another piece. They want, but they, they waded into it. I'm like, well, here's a response I have to the critique. Not even about the film, but respond and they the runaround they gave me was unprecedented. I, I had never seen these the amount of double speak I got from them. I even contacted their board. So I'm just using this as an example of it's so deep-seated that we can't even have discussions with a lot of these people on this. They will not allow it on their platforms. And I, I do, I, I, while I agree with you that we're going to be labeled things, no matter what, I do think it is important for us to be able to delineate and distinguish ourselves from the folks who are the anti-environmentalists and not just allow that to happen. I, I, I think they're doing it in bad faith. And I think we should at least on our own channels and forum, make a way to be like listen i know you're you're saying that these two are the same but they're not and here's why i i think even though we're we're still going to get labeled that i i don't think we can just let that rest but yeah ultimately you're right there, there might not be anything we can do about it but on an, another level the there is a lot of fragmentation though with folks who have concerns about let's say um some of the the renewable energy sources uh, some of them don't come from the the background of environmentalism, which is fine because people can come in from all sorts of places. But some of them are. I'll just give an example from Vermont, where I used to live. So I I visited the project Lowell Wind, which is a big ridge top or mount ridge ridge line wind. Basically, they call it mountaintop removal for wind, which is a little hyperbolic, but not really. They actually do blow up parts of the top of. Of the mountain, it's not as bad as as mountaintop removal mining. Like just to be honest about the actual impact, but <clears throat> it's not benign. They do literally level this top of this ridgeline to put in large turbines that are seen from afar for a very small percentage of energy. And in this case, the. What was happening at the exact same time was the ski area was going to be building a new water park like we need a water park in vermont and basically the math was done is whatever this building the building of the wind power is going to be sucked up by this stupid water park so it was like a meaningless endeavor blowing up the top of the mountain so this place could have a water park in vermont with tons of rivers and and lakes and streams unnecessary but here's something that i found was really interesting at least a fair amount of these folks who didn't like the wind power and were upset about the deforestation from it were pro biomass so i was just like i don't even know what the hell's going on and uh i i just so there's a lot there's a, it's a lot more complicated, I think, than we think, but it might just be your issue is wind, right? And you're going to push against that. And that's an activism thing. That That's fine. There are other folks who are working on this, but I do think at some point, we're going to at least have to find some overlap, and maybe it's not going to be on everything, but a way to have a network of folks who can push together because we're up against the Goliath, the behemoth, which In my mind, is not even necessarily just industrial society. I think a bigger (laughs) obstacle is the environmental movement, because at least when you're like, we have these massive machines that we are destroying and we're just looking to make money, you could be like, All right, I see what that is. Most people can see what that is. But when you have that in the guise of you know, green, green wolf's green sheep's clothing, or that's a terrible analogy, but it's a lot harder to, to deal with because they're like, no, 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 we're, we're the good guys. And you're like, wow, what, what do we do here? So that was just a, a rant. Cause you're, you're touching on all the topics that make me rant. I apologize, but um.
1: <laughs> no, it's good. And man, that encapsulates the whole thing, doesn't it? The, the building the wind to just to power the water park. And that's just so much what is going on. I mean, it's all this energy is being built to power additional, you know, luxuries and things that we don't need. And yeah, I mean, it's a disaster. And absolutely, it is such a huge problem that the so-called environmental movement, mainstream environmental movement, is is working against the environment and has a lot of people convinced that, that, that they are the good guys and that they do care about the environment. And they're the ones who have all the money and make a lot of the propaganda so it's a scary situation um yeah when i was going around with sea of life and going into film festivals i watched a lot of these like environmental films and you see like documentaries that get funded that are complete propaganda for the renewable industry it's just horrible like i watch these and it's just so much so much with blatant, propaganda, I don't know. Like they're saying things that are completely untrue. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know what to do about it, other than to just just point out the the unreality and you know point out what's going on and hope that people um, can see through it from then on. The thing is that lies are infinite. You know, it's the the real renewable resource here. You know, they can just keep making up you know, schemes and, you know, articles coming out that are like, we're going to refreeze the Arctic. Or there, there's endless new technologies that they can dream up and say, this is the, this is the next savior for, for the planet. Um, but hopefully when you can start to spot the pattern and, and see into the other side or the, the, the reality behind these technologies, um, hopefully people won't be fooled by that kind of stuff anymore.
0: Yeah, like you say, so lives are the only renewable resource. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly true. Of course, oh what well, the sun and the wind. It's like, okay, but you have to build things to harness those. But yeah. but again, it is that issue between the impacts of those, which are real, and then the underlying aspect of we are using them to fuel bad thing so it's like i've heard things talk in the past about jokes like around my activism and stuff like that oh don't worry the the cops at the protest it's organic pepper spray like that concept of oh it's you know locally harvest peppers you know it's like they're still spraying pepper spray in our eyes this is not a a positive thing and uh yeah i think people do want hope and what would you say to folks who are like well, you're just putting out a lot of bad news and that just makes me depressed and less likely to do anything about this.
1: I think understanding the reality, no matter how grim it might be, is the only hope we have of actually taking action that's appropriate, of actually coming from a place of, of really deeply understanding the situation and the problems and what is and isn't a solution. Um, otherwise, we're just wasting our time going down all these routes that, you know, we might think are accomplishing something, but really aren't. And we don't have time to waste. We're in the midst of the six mass extinction of life on the planet. We are losing 200 species every day. Um, we absolutely do not have time to waste on false solutions. So I think, I don't know, the, the best thing we can do is to just have a real hard look at, mm. at what's actually going on.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I totally agree with that. I've always been somebody who wants to take a look at things and, but here's a, another story that ties into pepper spray. So I remember part of what got me to move out West to work on forest issues was a film I saw about folks in the redwoods and then police, basically they were in this, they were, the activists were occupying some sort of building around the timber industry and they were locking hands or they locked down and what was happening was the the police were going by and not just pepper spraying people in the eye they were literally swabbing their eyeballs with pepper spray q-tips it was one of the most disturbing things i had seen but i was like holy shit, this is war i'm going out west and that's part of what got me out there then a few years into my activist career I showed that film at this weekly or monthly film series we were doing and people (laughs) left the room. People could not handle it. So that's when I learned, well, maybe I'm a little more hardcore in what actually convinces me. And some people just, they, they blanch, right. They, they can't handle that, that level of, of difficulty. So I, I, that's just a, do do you think that there are just going to be some people who are just going to turn off the switch and be like everything's fine nothing to see here and there's just not much we can do about those folks
1: yeah absolutely um the good news is we don't need everyone <laughs> it's only ever been a, you know a small percentage of the population that changes the world on on any issue um so yeah we we don't need everyone working with us we don't need to convince everybody but we do need a small dedicated you know passionate group of people who are willing to understand reality and act in a way that is in accordance with the scale of the
0: problem. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I, I think there is consciousness shift that happens. And I do think there's always there are the outliers who are the first ones to start being like, hey, maybe we shouldn't enslave human beings to force them to do our work. And most people are like, what are you talking about? But that first step and maybe it doesn't catch on right away. The problem with environmental issues is we don't have hundreds of years to figure that stuff out and not to uh, say that the suffering of human beings for, well, I mean, slavery had been pretty much in the beginning of humanity up until, well, in some ways we're still doing slavery, but official slavery had ended. That suffering was awful and we should have ended it earlier, but we didn't, but it didn't prevent us from progressing. The problem with environmental issues is if we don't address them by a certain time, it will prevent us from progressing. There's, if maybe we only need ten percent of fish to be able to restock, but zero percent of fish, we're not restocking that.
1: Yeah, exactly. We we are up against a real uh, limit, and it does need to happen I mean, yesterday. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, So in terms of being able to address things quickly, I think we need to start thinking much more strategically and not in a like changing hearts and minds kind of thing. I mean, that's useful and certainly educating people and getting them to come on board is useful, but we need to think about power and we need to think about how do we, you know, deprive those who would destroy life on the planet of their ability to do so.
0: If I'm open to, ideas and suggestions. Um, I, I certainly am. Um, yeah, I, I, I am, it's like, I do think that issue is, yeah, we we need to push back. And then also we have to show an alternative that is better I don't think it's either or. I think if we don't do both, nothing's going to happen, but that's, I mean, that's literally the most daunting thing that we could possibly be. We're both talking about, all right, there are these entrenched power structures and call it whatever you want. We have to dismantle that. Okay. I agree. Tall order. And then at the same time, we got to reconstruct our way of life entirely based on some things in the past and maybe a present day in the future. Cause we, we can't all be hunter gatherers. So it's, it's quite the dilemma. <laughs> and that's why I've resorted to just doing a podcast. I'm like, I don't even know what the hell I'm supposed to do. I know that foundations don't want to fund anything real because foundations are corporate entities that are basically, why all of a sudden are they going to start caring about things that they've spent their entire existence destroying? And then environmental groups, a lot of them are, I would say the vast majority, I would say nearly every single environmental move, group is made up of primarily well-meaning people, like, as I know these people and they're not bad, they're not like, ah, I'm secretly going to, that's not, it's a delusion. It's some other stuff going on, but it's, if you know, in the nonprofit structure, which I went to grad school for that, it was so boring, but basically it's like, you have to keep showing like on a balance sheet, your progress, like your financial progress in a sense, but your environmental progress to keep getting the grant money coming in. So anything that doesn't just set up a like a low bar and then meet that bullshit low bar will not be funded again. And um I I learned that because I started as a grant writer and was able to get grants for I don't want to say bullshit projects, but just kind of like not, not addressing systematically. And then when I started being like, all right, I'm gonna use my skills to actually address real things, all of a sudden no one wanted to fund me, you know, fund me. And it's like, Did my ability to write grants, to like put words together, just disappear? No, that's not what happened at all. So it's, we're up against a lot, but, but yeah, I I mean, I don't expect you or anyone to have the answers of how to do it, but, but so let's say people watch your film. Um, So they watch your film and then they're like, cool. Now I know what's next. For let's just like let's pick. I'm going to pick a a person. Like we're gonna we're gonna write a story here. So it's a it's a person. It's uh it's like a you know a 17 year old boy in Kansas. I keep bringing up Kansas for some reason. And then he watches your film and he's like, "Wow, oh okay. Well, forget my path of engineering. I want to get. What do I what do I do? What what should that boy do who just got inspired by your film?
1: So. I think an important line um, that Lear says in the film, like we're talking about, you know, individual, um, and this is in the scene about consumer consumer choices and you know people thinking that it's all about buying green things. But she she basically says, don't just be one person because as one person you don't have a whole lot of power. You know, get together with other people, um, you know, join an organization, work with people who share the same values and want to protect the natural world. Then You know, your options become a lot greater and, you know, whether that's, it'll depend on what your skills are. It'll depend on who you are as a person and you know what you feel called to do, but you could be getting involved into some kind of direct action campaign. I mean, right now there are activists um, working to stop a lithium mine. They've got an encampment set up to try and stop this lithium mine from going in to make batteries for electric cars. Um, or whether it's like lobbying at a government level or you know if you're into legal stuff working on that realm, I mean there's so many areas that people can you put their efforts into. But yeah, trying to trying to um, collaborate with people and you know work together towards a common goal. I think you can have a lot more power than if you're just one individual and you're saying, well, I don't know, should I, should I buy a different light bulb or something? You know?
0: No, totally agree. Right now involved with a little effort behind the scenes where it's kind of about corralling the lone wolves who are doing all these awesome stuff, but kind of on their own. And finally, is there some loose network we can create? I did a podcast about it. I don't know, a a couple months ago, uh, prefacing that and give it a try. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. The problem about lone wolves is they like to be lone wolves. So, uh, that's, uh, we we have the the folks who work inside the environmental movement. They're very good at working in lockstep because they're in their brainwash group think <laughs> and it's like uh the rest of us we we're such individuals. And then a lot of time we're like, oh, you know what? Well, Julia has that one idea, and I I might agree with ninety nine point nine nine percent, but that point zero one percent, sorry, Julia, can't have anything to do with you. And obviously, if somebody is a, a an abusive person and has done actual harm to people. That's one thing, but I, I've, you know, I've been written off for just, you know, yeah. Like, oh, you're, you're anti-biomass, you're pro coal. And it's like, what the hell are you even talking about, dude? So, yeah. So I guess it, it, when would, uh, when is this film coming out and how, how do they get their hands on some bright green lies?
1: So the film is going to premiere on April 22nd. Um, Tickets are not available yet. They're going to come available on March 18th. So if you go to the website, brightgreenlies.com, you can sign up for an email list, get updates when things become available. Um, Otherwise, yeah, March 18th, go to the website and yeah, you can get tickets. So we're going to have this like live online premiere event it'll be streaming and we're gonna have a QA afterwards with myself and Derek and Lear and Max. So it'll be it'll be a fun event and get to watch the
0: movie. That's cool. And hopefully the pandemic will be waning more by then. But here's the interesting thing. In some ways doing stuff virtually is we're actually learning obviously there's lots of drawbacks, but in some ways it's it's actually could be better. Like you can so when they put planet humans out on youtube i mean so it's up to like 12 million views even with the the misinformation and censorship campaigns that was all basically grassroots that's uh there'd be no more nowhere near that many asses in the seats in theaters so it's a great opportunity to put things out into the world people are still going to be probably you know even if we're things are waning in the pandemic we're still going to be in the midst of the pandemic so uh yeah, it, it might be some great timing and I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that and certainly put out information to make people aware of the film so they can take a look at it. Thank you so much for coming on the Green Root Podcast and folks should definitely check out her films, her prior film and the film that's coming out now and thanks for all you're doing.
1: Thank you.